Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. All right, welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com and a fascinating, fascinating book out right now. It's called Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. And if that didn't grab your ear right away or shake your brain a little bit, I'm surprised because uh, I was surprised to see this book take an angle with the VA that is one that I've never heard before. In this GWAT era, this global war on terror era where we're doing everything we can to support vets and frankly, in 2021, doing everything we can to support mental health, you know, in all walks of life. And this book was stunning. So when I got the pitch, I said, I have to talk to retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Gade. And um, Daniel, without further ado, man, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be on with you. Thanks so much, Phil. Before I get long-winded with my intro, let me just lift a little bit from the description of the book here on the website. It says, you're a retired Army officer who was wounded in action twice, lost your leg in combat, and you paired up with a former Wall Street Journal reporter, Daniel Huang, uh, interviewed dozens of veterans and VA staffers who observed firsthand the effects of a broken system. It's an engrossing deep dive into the VA's perverse incentives that instead of making life better for veterans, leave them worse off. So I'm going to kind of leave it at a cliffhanger there because I want to jump into your military background first, because you are not a guy that's just one of these policy wonks or one of these people that's just a, uh, you know, the sky is falling kind of doomsday crier. Um, you're a guy that knows firsthand what it's like and how the VA does deal with injuries. So let's start with you. Retired Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Army, Daniel Gade. You've been deployed a couple of times. Tell me about yourself. Yeah, you bet. So I uh, am from North Dakota, born and raised uh, near a Air Force base, actually, in uh, Minot, North Dakota. Why not Minot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know it. Yeah, I know it right. well. That's right. What we say is freezing's the reason. So <laughs> it, it, so anyway, so I uh, my family was pretty poor growing up. We had the Constitution and the Bible, and the, my parents loved each other, but that's the only things we had. We didn't have any money. 
And so uh, when I was getting ready to go to college, it was like, hey, where do you, you know, how are you going to pay for college? And so I enlisted in the U.S. Army as a private in 1992 on April 27th. And then uh, a couple months later, I found out that I'd been accepted to West Point. And so the first summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I went to basic training. And then after I graduated from high school, I went back to basic training again, only this time at West Point. Uh, graduated from West Point in 97 and became an armor officer and did all the normal armor officer things. I went to airborne school. I went to ranger school. I did, I led a platoon and, you know, I led a couple of different platoons actually. Um, I was a general's aide. And then in, in, uh, 2000, I graduated from the Marine amphibious warfare school where I went for my captain's career course, it's called. And then from there, I went to Korea. And when I was in, I served in Korea for uh, almost three years, actually, and was a tank company commander in Korea in the, uh, in the second infantry division in the army. And then about a couple of days before I was scheduled to change command, I got deployed. I, I got the word that I was going to be deployed to combat in Iraq. Um, and we went to Ramadi. We went to what at the time in 04 was almost certainly the most dangerous city in Iraq. And, uh, I, my unit began taking casualties immediately. I had a lieutenant killed in action about two weeks into our tour. I myself was wounded about two months into our tour, three months into our tour in November of 2004 on the, on the Marine Corps birthday. I was, I was wounded by a rocket propelled grenade that killed my loader on my tank and wounded me slightly. I was just some shrapnel in my arm and face and I was uh, returned to duty the next day. But, but my soldier, Dennis Miller was killed in action immediately. And then, Two months later, on January 10th, 05, I got hit by an IED and woke up on my back in the ditch and through a, a series of miraculous interventions by by God and the Marine Corps, although they, they don't think of themselves as separate, I don't think, from the, from God. And then, uh, <laughs> Amen. And, and, Amen. and the U and the U.S. Navy, uh, U.S. Navy surgeons, they saved my life and, and, uh, transported me to Walter Reed Army Medical Center where, where a week after I got hurt, they, amputated my right leg at the hip and I was unconscious for about three weeks or maybe four weeks and uh, in the intensive care unit for another couple of months. And then I started on a really long road to recovery. But one of the first really important decisions I made was that I wasn't going to let the enemy determine when I got out of the army and I was going to continue to serve until I was good and ready to get out. And so I served on active duty for another 12 years, but uh, I had to kind of remake myself. You know, I couldn't be an armor officer anymore with one leg. So I uh, went and got a master's degree in public policy, and then I went and worked veterans policy at the White House under President Bush for a year. And then I went back and got a PhD in sort of veterans policy. And uh, and then I went and taught at West Point for, for six years, during which time I really became passionate about this issue of how do we, how do we as a society help veterans thrive instead of help instead of having veterans who are sicker and poorer and worse off as the book says how do we how do we get veterans to a place where they are thriving and able to have dignity and and worth in their lives and our current system just isn't cutting it i saw that when i was a patient at walter reed and i saw that in the policy level and i saw that in some of my fellow uh wounded warriors who really um are falling prey to some bad mythology and we mm. see the results right. I mean, we see the results right now. We see 22 suicides a day or more. Some studies say more. Uh, we see a lot of veterans. We see veterans um, in the labor market at lower rates. We see high rates of disability for things that are not 
that in civilian contexts are curable disorders or treatable disorders. We see them treated as lifelong disabilities and we see veterans feeling, you know, useless and worthless. And it's a real, it's a real tragedy. And this book blows the whistle on all of that in a mm. uh, pretty profound, pretty profound way. I'm really proud of the book. First tip of the cap to you, sir. <laughs> Come a long way <laughs> since the prairies yeah. in North Dakota, man. I got my radio start back in South Dakota and that's where I that's joined funny. the Navy out of too, because I couldn't keep a radio job. And I was like, well, I got to get out of this place, man, to be able to go on to not only uh, go through enlisted, but get chosen to become an officer, go through all that schooling and then end up in the mix in Ramadi. Wow. I mean, that was hell to pay. Those were some tough days, a counterinsurgency strategy. We were building while we were flying the plane. I mean, it was just, right. it was just tough stuff. And I wanted you to say all of what you just said, because I want people that are going to hear our next conversation. I wanted them to hear that you're qualified to speak on this because you lost your leg. So let's kind of step off there and talk about the way the book opens. I found this very interesting and you capture it in about two pages talking about two guys, Jeff and Matt. Matt's already gotten out of the army. It's down near Fort Bragg, lives off post there. Jeff is acquiring his signatures and it documents that last moment he walks off post. He's got his final signature. He's done. He gets his signature. He walks off. He is no longer in the army. Boom. Off to the great horizon. That is the world of civilian life and freedom. So he rolls over to his buddy's Matt's house and he quickly changes into his new uniform, which is jeans and a hoodie. He's a civilian now. And they're loving it. And as they kick back and have a Marlboro moment there, they're talking about it. And they're going in two different directions. And this is so often the case with veterans. Jeff, excited to get back to his fiance and begin school. Matt, he is going to start collecting some benefits. And it all emanates from, as Jeff described, one of the last meetings he had, or rather VA officials have a meeting during that program. And they say that, the VA will give you benefits for all kinds of things. If you're having trouble sleeping, if you have nightmares, if you're ever feeling anxious, in order to emphasize one point, you can get paid for these things. And Matt was signing up for absolutely everything he thought he could get paid for because he said, if they're going to give it, he's going to take it. After all, he earned it. And along with your fellow writing partner there, you guys discover a really nasty trend that's going on in the veteran world today? Well, here's the nasty trend, but let me start off with a couple of uh, statistics. So between 2000 and 2020, the number of veterans receiving disability benefits doubled, even as the overall veteran population fell by a third from 26 million to 18 million. So, so that again, the, the number of veterans went down by 8 million, but the number of disabled veterans double and the percent of veterans who uh, who are leaving service these days right now walking around but who left the left the military this year the percent of veterans who receive disability compensation is about 50 percent so so the the system has all of these pathways by which veterans can apply for benefits and receive benefits and and by receiving benefits they receive financial compensation but nobody ever stops to say hang on a second what does financial compensation do to people who are receiving it and and some of this came out in the news this year this last year because of covid right where there's this idea that if you pay people to stay home with unemployment benefits increased unemployment benefits 
then they'll stay home. And we know that's true from an economic point of view. Of course, that's true. But the same thing has been true of, of veterans for generations where they get paid, they get paid to maximize their disabilities. And then the, the sicker they can show themselves to be, the, the higher their payment is. And there's no incentive. As a matter of fact, there's negative incentives for people ever to get better. And so how does this play out? Well, we talk about it in the book with Matt and Jeff, but the way it actually plays out in real life is, is pretty obvious. Uh, if you, let's say you're 25 and you have a permanent disability of some kind, let's say it's a mental uh, health condition and, and now you're a hundred percent disabled veteran, right? Now we could talk about whether the boundaries are set properly on hundred percent and all that stuff, but let's say you're hundred percent disabled veteran. So you decide, Hey, I don't have to work, but you're not married yet. You'd like to get me married. You like a wife or whatever. And, uh, you let's say you go to church and you're going to meet a you're going to meet a girl at the singles in the singles Bible study at church or you're going to go to a bar and you're going to meet a girl at the, at the bar, whatever, whatever your flavor is. Right. It's probably it's probably more helpful to note that the bar is probably not the best place to start. Yeah, let's just let's just uh, let's just say the church is probably the better place. But whatever. <laughs> okay, so you say so go out. You, let's 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 split the difference and say you go to the mall if malls even exist anymore and, and you, uh, and you're going to meet somebody, but anyway, so, so you, the first question that that girl's going to ask the the man is, Hey, what is it you do for a living? Right. She doesn't care what your last name is. She don't care where you live. She doesn't care what kind of car you drive. She cares like, what is it you do for a living? And the reason that is, is because what she's really asking is, is this guy marriage material? Um, and when she asks the question, if the person responds, I'm a disabled veteran, She's going to be like, oh, great. Nice to meet you. You know, and she's going to turn on her heel and walk away. Why? Because that's ultimately a negative facing a negative looking orientation on the future. It's a negative identity. Being disabled is bad, right? That's why it has the word dis in it. So what is better? Well, what is better is being employed. What is better is being in school. What is better is being able to contribute value to society. But the way the policy is set up right now, way too many veterans are identifying with the disability mindset and the disability philosophy, and it's causing them to have weaker social relationships, as I just described. It's causing them to contribute less work to the labor market, as I just described. And what happens is those people, let's say they're retired now and they're 25 and they're physically healthy, but maybe have some depression or some anxiety or something. And they're looking across the decades to when they get to die, you know, when they get to their expiration date at, let's say, 85. And they're saying, oh, gosh, so you're telling me that for the next 60 years, I'm going to sit on the couch and play video games and, and you know, drink whiskey at 10 o'clock in the morning? Well, you know, that's not great, right? And it's intensely um, disempowering. And so what happens is, and, and we shouldn't act surprised when this happens is veterans go in the, you know, they go in the garage and they, and they um, harm themselves. And why do they do that? Well, they do it for all the logical reasons. They do it because society has, has told them that they are worthless pieces of, of poo. And, and so when they behave in a way that is fundamentally reflecting that worldview, we shouldn't be surprised. And I think so, so the disability system as it's currently constructed, contributes to veterans having bad outcomes, including up to and including the worst outcome of all, which is suicide. Mm, that's heavy because I get out of the Navy as an enlisted guy myself. 
And I think about my fellow E4s that maybe went back to like Appalachia or went back to small town, middle of nowhere, West Overshoe, you know, pick any state, right? And maybe there's not a lot of jobs in my, in my town. And maybe all my buddies from high school are, you know, still working at Circle K or, you know, working at the, uh, at the big box retail store. And there's just not huge opportunities in my town. And you tell me that I get disability compensation for having anxiety, having some nightmares, having all these like relatively predictable things that would happen immediately after a combat tour. Well, if you tell me as a 24-year-old guy that ain't got a job, that I can get a few hundred extra bucks a month, I don't think that's a bad thing. And frankly, if you're living in kind of a socioeconomic area where there's not a lot of high-paying jobs, that's actually a pretty good thing. What you're saying is that's actually got a second and third order effect that is not healthy for the recipient of the few hundred bucks. For sure it does. Yeah. So there is a study, there's a study that came out a few years ago showing that um, it's not actually disability level. That's this, that's the most important driver of, uh, people filing for disability claims. It's, uh, economic conditions by zip code. So your local economic conditions are far more important in making the decision to apply for disability compensation than are your, than are your personal disabilities. But get this, it's even worse than what you said. And here's why. Because anxiety and, and depression and all those things are in fact real. Those are real conditions that are real conditions when they're real, but are also not verifiable at all. And so, for example, hearing loss, the only test for hearing loss is, hey, do you hear the beep, right? And the only test for tinnitus ringing in the ears is where the doctor says, hey, do you have tinnitus or your ears ringing? You say, yes, doc, it's bothering me terribly. And they give you 10% disability for it. You say, oh, yeah, it's waking me up at night. And there's no test for it. And lower back pain is famous for this. It's called, a, there was a condition, and we talk about it in the book, back in the old days when there were railway accidents all the time, you would get these, these people who were otherwise fit and healthy, and they'd say, oh, that's terrible, crippling lower back pain. Well, lo, you know, lower back pain is really difficult to diagnose. It's really difficult to treat, and it's easily fake. And so it's, it was called the railway spine. So get this, the top three conditions in the VA's uh, disability system are none other than hearing loss, tinnitus, and lower back pain, um, with knee pain a uh, either third or fourth, depending on what year it is. So these are non-verifiable conditions, and you get a lot of people who are applying for those things in part because they're told by the VA itself, "Hey, if you apply for these things, we can get you rated for it." And for those who have the real condition of anxiety, depression, you know, all of those things that are under the umbrella of post-traumatic stress, by the way, is not a, um, it's not a single condition. It's a basket of conditions. It's a group of symptoms that are sometimes related to, uh, they're sometimes related to combat, combat, and sometimes are just related to being a human in, in, in life, you know, where sometimes people get anxious, sometimes people get depressed, and that's all normal. So we shouldn't abnormalize any of that. But anyway, it's all a, it's all a basket. And so what happens is um, the VA will pay you for those basket of conditions. And get this, this is a this is probably the biggest failing. Uh, there are a lot of big failings of the VA. This is a huge failing of the VA that there's no requirement for somebody who's receiving disability compensation to get treatment for that condition at all. Now, when we come back, we'll hear more with Daniel Gade, a retired army lieutenant colonel who lost his leg in combat. 
and we'll hear how he backs his claims with examples from the world of civilian medicine. And we'll dive deeper into his book, Wounding Warriors, how bad policy is making veterans sicker and poorer, when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. So we know anxiety is treatable. We know depression is treatable. We know that schizophrenia is is treatable. We know all of it is treatable. And in civilian contexts, let's say rape victims, for example, male and female rape victims can and do recover. Their, Their physicians expect them to recover. There's treatment protocols that work. But the only treatment protocols that don't work are those for PTSD are those that are applied to veterans. Why? Because the disability system keeps them sick. As a matter of fact, there's a new, there's a brand new study out that says that, that shows basically that, uh, that it's a bad idea for clinicians who are trying to measure PTSD recovery to use veterans as a treatment or control group because the disability compensation system is designed to keep them sick. I mean, it's, it's, if you were designing a system from scratch, from a clean sheet of paper, and you, and the purpose of your system was to make veterans worse off, you could barely do better at making veterans worse off than the current disability compensation scheme. Wow. So by tying money benefits to an illness, they have zero incentive to ever get over that illness. Even better, they have very strong incentive to remain sick. Yes. Wow. And then, of course, the second and third order, we get into the third order there by claiming they've been sick and disabled for X amount of years. Then they really do they I don't want to say fall deeper into a decline, but does their willful admission and their constant recognition of the fact that they have some stress related to combat? Is that what makes them in some cases spiral off and get even to a darker place because they don't do anything to fix their own lives? They stay in a socioeconomic uh, under delivering zip code. They stay underemployed. They stay uh, over drunk. They stay over drugged. And then the next thing you know, you know, you got a pill Billy drinking Jack Daniels at 10 in the morning, ain't got a great job. And he's 10 years out the military thinking, well, dang, I'm sick. Well, yeah. And, and the, if you think about the sweater beginning to unravel in somebody's life, the sweater begins to unravel with, you know, a low level depression or something like that for which they get maybe a 20 or 30% disability rating. And then because that depression is by definition untreated in the VA, I mean, the VA has a treatment problem too. The, the, the issue is that that veteran has sort of two choices. One is to try to apply to the VA healthcare system to get healthcare, which is very difficult to access, and there aren't enough providers and all of those normal things, or all those things we've come to expect by watching the news. The other thing he can do is continue to be in his uh, state of sort of fog, and his condition will actually progress and will actually get worse because he's, in part, because he's getting paid to have it get worse, but in part because those conditions, if untreated, do devolve into a, you know the circling the drain is the phrase i use where the where the person is getting worse and worse and the system does nothing to pre- prevent that and as a matter of fact has built-in features that make that more real damn you told me something earlier uh when we spoke last week i i, I wanted to bring back up uh let's compare and contrast real quick between like say world war ii era veterans and today's veterans i found this kind of shocking 
So recall that um, during World War II, these guys, they would go, they'd be deployed for the duration, which meant three years on a destroyer, which meant many, many missions in combat in on the ground or in the air or whatever. And they were subject to worse health care. On average, those people claimed 2.4 conditions of this for dis, disability recipients, 2.4 conditions per, per recipient. For global war on terror recipients, these people claimed almost eight, 7.96 is the number. And as a result, what you have, you, what you have to face is the fact that that disparity between the two groups is driven in part by the fact that the, the gate is wide open and normal conditions of aging. So let's say your minor hearing loss, or let's say your sore knees, or let's say your sore back or whatever. Those are all minor conditions or potentially major conditions, but they're aging related. The veteran is allowed now to point the finger at the government rather than at the fact that he's getting older, which allows him to, to um, sort of shirk responsibility in some ways. So I'll give you, we talked about this the other day too, um, type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is, an, is the adult onset variety. Uh, all the medical literature shows that it is directly tied to obesity. And yet... In the VA, it's considered if you were a Vietnam veteran, even, even one just on a boat, never, never put on, never were on shore or just flew over Vietnam, but you were never in it. Type two diabetes is considered a presumptive condition of agent orange. So we've got a obesity related condition that the veteran gets to point his finger at agent orange and say, yeah, that's, it's agent orange's fault. Well, get this. That allows you to do two things. One is get paid for it and quite a lot of money. The other thing is it allows you to say, well, my lifestyle choices of eating a bowl of ice cream every night, as my friend's dad does, and he's really overweight, um, that lifestyle choice is not what caused this. So it allows me to shirk responsibility for my own choices and blame somebody else. And so it, it has this really pernicious effect of disempowering veterans, not having them take responsibility for their lives. And it's, it's you know, the effects are, the effects are virtually universally bad. Wow. Uh, getting personal with this, did you find a moment where you could have slipped down the slope of becoming that wounded warrior, of becoming that veteran that lost a leg and that life is now radically changed? Did you have a moment where you had to tell yourself, I'm not just going to sit down and collect benefits, even though I could? Sure. I mean, I had to when I was leaving the army. I just decide what it was that I was willing to file for. And in other words, what was the moral responsibility of the taxpayer and what was my own moral responsibility? And so when they said, hey, you have degenerative spine disease, and I said, okay, cool. What does that mean? They said, well, it just happens to everybody when they're in their forties. I said, great. I'm not going to file for it. And they go, well, but you can, you can get paid for it. Like, like, look, man, I'm not doing it. And then they said, okay, you've got a hip level amputation. That's, that's true. I, I woke up with it today and I'll go to bed with it tonight. You know, um, am I willing to file for that? Absolutely. But what I'm not going to do is believe that just because I'm hundred percent disabled, which the leg alone is a 90% disability, but just because I'm hundred percent disabled, does that mean that I'm a worthless piece of trash that has to sit on the couch? No, it doesn't. Um, as a matter of fact, I have a lot to offer society. And so I've tried, you know, I've remained active and I'm a, I'm a college professor and I ran for office last year. I was in the political realm and I, you know, I'm, I'm a productive human being. 
but that's because I made a choice to do that, even though the system was stacked to, to make me not want to do that. And I think what we as a society have to do is make a choice about what do we expect of our veterans? And I think what we ought to expect is we ought to expect a system that helps veterans be the, you know, famously the 1980s army recruiting phrase, be all you can be, right? That helps veterans be all they can be. That really does move veterans towards thriving. And in the, um, in the, in the epilogue of the book, Wounding Warriors available on woundingwarriors.com for pre-order right now and on Amazon by end of October, I lay out a couple of principles. And one of the principles is that um, we ought to prioritize as a society, we should be prioritizing wellness instead of illness. And that means making sure that veterans are getting the health care they need and, and getting to maximal functionality prior to there being any kind of disability determination. Um, and we ought to move, uh, we ought to move in a revenue neutral way. In other words, spending the exact same amount as we do on veterans already. We could be smarter about how we spend that money by, by making it so that more, a higher proportion of it is spent on rehabilitation, reskilling, upskilling, transferring skills than is spent on compensating people for being sick. And we'll be back with the conclusion of our discussion about the book Wounding Warriors, how bad VA policy makes veterans sicker and poorer, when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs with the veteran news and lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. Now we've been talking with retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Gade, about his eye-opening new book, Wounding Warriors, which confronts how stamping vets with the disabled label for conditions that are treatable and most often recoverable is actually making them identify as sick, busted, and further contributes to many of them being broke. But what I wanted to know is how to pair this theory with those vets who I most certainly know and believe have become sick and in many cases dying from diseases that are caused by the toxic exposures from things like burn pits. Uh, most recently, having talked to uh, Senate Veterans Affairs Committee chairs and uh, Senator Tester and on the House side, Representative Takano, and I'm hammering them in this interview just two weeks ago about presumptives for yeah, yeah, burn pits yeah. and toxic exposures. And I'm sitting here in feeling I'm doing my due diligence in the trenches as everything I can do by hammering these Congress people saying, listen, 23 kinds of cancers, all these things related to toxic burn pits. Even the president's son died of what he considers uh, some sort of relative exposure to burn pits. Why in the hell aren't these presumptive diseases just on a list and any veteran can get benefits for them? And that's why I found your book so shocking, because I realized what I'm arguing here sometimes is actually a slippery slope to the, uh, you know, to making a veteran worse off. Yeah, exactly. So, on, but how on do I square pits, that? How do I square them needing yeah. some of them really do have lung deadly cancers and lung diseases? Yeah, for sure. So we could, I think we should back up just one half step and say that, of course, you know, we all wish that Bo Biden hadn't died of a terrible brain cancer and, and thrown his family into chaos as a tragedy, as every cancer death is a tragedy, right? But what is not true. If you think about it, if you think about this logically, remember that before he deployed to Iraq, 
he was attorney general of, of Delaware. He was the second or third highest, depending on how you count it, elected official in Delaware. And his dad was vice president of the United States at the time. Is there any parallel universe in which we believe that Bo Biden in his living quarters in probably in the green zone in Baghdad was in the direct plume of a burn pit? Absolutely not. Okay, great. So was he on a remote fob, you know, burning his own human waste and MRE trash and stuff like that and stirring it with a stick as so many privates have done, including my father in Vietnam? Absolutely not. Instead, he was in an air-conditioned office in a secure area, and he got a rare brain cancer. Is it appropriate to lay that at the feet of burn pits? Well, I mean, it's easier to do it because it makes him seem like he was killed in action in a way. And, and so President Biden goes around, you know, sort of almost pretending to be a gold star father, even though he's not. Um, so there's there's a powerful psychological incentive to want to believe that whatever's wrong with you is somebody else's fault. Um, and so if for somebody who gets a rare cancer, whether it's a brain cancer or a lung cancer or a, some kind of rare disorder, is it possible that some of that stuff is attributable to burn pits? For sure. I mean, you're burning, people are burning batteries and they're burning, you know, sometimes, you know, bodies. And I mean, just really, really nasty stuff. But here's the thing. It's also possible that some of that stuff is regular conditions of living. It's also possible that those veterans are smokers. It's also possible that, you know, X, Y, and Z, and you can sort of lay out all those things. But what you, we ought not to do from a policy point of view is say that because we're emotionally charged about something or because we want to believe that it's somebody else's fault, that it is somebody else's fault. Sometimes it's just bad luck. Bo Biden didn't die because of burn pits. Bo Biden died because he had the bad luck to either have bad genetics or some kind of strange thing that happened that caused him to get glioblastoma and die. And that's a tragedy, but it's not appropriate to say that that's a, uh, to say that that's the same as a soldier who was, you know, maimed by an IED or, or shot and killed on the battlefield. Now, as a veteran who lost his leg in combat, I can tell how sincere Daniel Gade is about helping our veterans and how he really wants to do it the right way. And I was also fascinated by an example he gave during our interview that linked bad VA policy to a famous parable from the Bible. I mean, if you think about the story of Adam and Eve, right? God tells him not to eat the fruit. Eve takes the fruit. She eats a bite. She hands it to Adam. Adam takes a bite, right? So those are like the first two sins, both of those two people, you know, disobeying God's commands. And then the third sin in the Bible is basically when God shows up and he says to Adam, like, hey, what, what happened here? You know, and Adam points his finger at Eve and says, it's her fault. So that blame shifting is a form of it's, it's a kind of sin because it's basically a form of arrogance to the level of blaming his wife for whatever had happened. You know, but with the, in veterans world, the application here is that old sin of, of blame shifting is is enhanced by what the VA does right now. Because what the VA does is says, hey, for you Vietnam veterans, if you're fat and got type 2 diabetes, it's definitely Agent Orange's fault. And so that veteran can shift the blame from his own lifestyle habits to Agent Orange, and it feels more comfortable, and he gets paid to do it. Or if you think about, um, there's a story in the book about this gentleman who was a Marine, he deployed to combat and, and fierce combat, by the way, I mean, real combat. 
And he blames his mental health condition on the fact that he was a combat Marine. Okay, so far. I mean, I think we'd all generally accept that that can happen. Well, here's the funny part in the story. The story, the rest of the story is his wife also blames it on the Marine Corps and on his service, but his parents were both schizophrenics and he had schizophrenic breaks in high school and made it worse by doing a lot of drugs before and after his Marine Corps service. And now he has schizophrenic breaks and, but he's in a position as a former combat Marine that he can point the finger and say, it's government's fault. It's my fellow citizens fault. And it's a powerful temptation, man, because now he gets, you know, he's retired medically from the Marine Corps and he gets VA disability payments and he gets social security disability payments and he gets treated like a hero wherever he goes. But is it the fault of the government that this schizophrenic man from schizophrenic parents ended up with schizophrenia? Maybe. And by the way, this has real effects in two ways. It's hurting our national readiness for, because it's making people think that veterans are weak and broken and sick and that every veteran is going to be mangled by their service. So why would I allow my children to serve? So it decreases the overall propensity to serve in, in the population and results in veterans, uh, and results in veterans being viewed as a pitied class rather than an honored class. And that has real national security implications. It makes it harder to recruit and retrain retain veterans. And it makes parents whisper to their kids, like, service is something other people do. You know, famously, John Kerry said, you know, if you don't get educated, you end up in Iraq or something like that. Um, but the other thing it does is causes veterans to um, not ever take a critical look at what they can do to promote their own health and instead to um, to just rely on the, you know, the kindness of government to take care of them. And it's a real problem because that's not really the government is not kind. Government has a function to do, but government is not kind. Government is not friend. And if you're relying on government to take care of you, ultimately you're at the mercy of of uh, forces that are beyond your control. And that's where we'll leave it today. You can find Army veteran Daniel Gade's book, Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer, at woundingwarriors.com. For ConnectingVets.com, I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And I'll be back next week when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes. And I'd love to talk to you every week. So please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C. And I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, 
wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.